Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 27 in a message we've entitled, The New Jerusalem. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall and twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall was of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its, great, and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stedia. And the, its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its wall, four, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an, an, an angelic measurement or angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the cities were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second of sapphire, the third of agate, the fourth of emerald, the fifth of onyx, the sixth of carillion, the seventh of crystallite, the eighth of Burel, the ninth of Topaz, the tenth of Chrysophrase, I believe, the eleventh uh, Janicthus, the twelfth Amorist, and the twelve gates of the twelve were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need for a sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day, and there will, never be, uh, there will be no more night. They will bring into the, the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does, not, does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me ask you a question. Is there a city of the world that you hope to see one day in your lifetime? Maybe it's a city that you have on your bucket list. I want to see that city before I die. Anybody have a city? Maybe it's Jerusalem. Seeing Jerusalem, that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? You know, I, I'd be happy to see London. 
or I would be happy to see uh, with my wife Tokyo. That's her city. She'd like to see Tokyo. Now, we all want to see Jerusalem first, so I don't think we're carnal, but we also want to see some of these other cities. Autumn, Paris. She wants to see Paris. I think we all have a city that we hope one day we get to see. I've been able to see many of the cities that I've wanted to so far. I've wanted to see New York City, and it was absolutely spectacular. Standing on top of the Empire State Building and seeing Manhattan at that time, and while I was there, the last time I was there, the World Trade Center still stood, and it was incredible to see. Seeing it during the day from the Empire State Building, seeing it at nighttime from the Empire State Building. It was phenomenal. And so not only seeing a city, but seeing it from a certain vantage point, I think really makes all the difference in the world. Because New York on the ground didn't seem the same way as New York from the air. It's amazing when I find films that have been filmed in Chicago. And it's amazing the shots that they get of our city here in Chicago. Uh, It's amazing to me. It's like, oh, I never saw that. I've lived here my whole life. I've never seen that perspective before. I've never seen it from that angle. I can imagine that Paris would be beautiful as we're walking down the side of the river, maybe walking up to Notre Dame itself and seeing it there in Paris. But standing on the Eiffel Tower and seeing Paris would be something completely different. I bet you that would be magnificent. If I get a chance to go to London, I certainly want to see London from the top of that Ferris wheel that they have there. That is just spectacular. And get to see it from that perspective, especially at night. But maybe as we started with, the city of Jerusalem is where you hope to see it. Maybe you'd like to stand on the Mount of Olives and look at the city of Jerusalem. I hope you get that opportunity. I hope we all get that opportunity in this lifetime. But if we don't, we have a new Jerusalem that waits for us that I guarantee that each and every one of us who are in Christ are going to see. And it's interesting to me that when God presented this city, this gorgeous, beautiful city to John, he took John to a mountaintop, figuratively speaking or symbolically speaking, but he gave John that vantage point where he could best view what was was there. Spectacular thing to consider. As we look at this city that was introduced to us earlier in chapter 21, John gives us a more down-to-the-earth look at what this city is like. And there's a lot of mystery to it. There's There's a lot of wonder to it, just like the new heavens and the new earth. There are things that seem unexplainable. There are some who try to make descriptions and diagrams of this, but I think in their attempts to do so, they lose just the basic essence of its enormity, but also of just how awesome it is. This place, this dwelling place that God has created for him to dwell with us for all eternity. Seeing it through the lens of John, we get here a picture of it, as he describes it with the different jewels in which he does. An angel even goes about and measures it. Some believe that this is just uh, symbolic, that this is uh, not actually measurements. But there's a word here used that I think we have to take a little bit more uh, 
uh, seriously. He also measured its walls, verse 17, 144 cubits by measurements, human measurements, which is also in an angel's measurements, meaning that there's an actual measurement he's taking. And he's comparing it. John wants us to know that this is what he saw. This is the dimensions of what he saw. And some of it is just fascinating as we will look at it together. In the beginning of chapter 21, we did a flyby. The very first time I ever had a chance to visit Disney World in Florida, we have always flew by night when, we, when I was growing up. And as we were flying into the Orlando airport, my dad woke me up and he pointed and he said, look, look, that's Disney World. And it was just all lit up and you could see the castle from afar on. And it was amazing to see it from that vantage point. We got that flyover last week. Now we're going to walk the grounds, get in there and actually begin to see a little bit about it. Now, as we go through it, there are many who try to find meaning to every aspect of it and a lot of it contradicts itself and we are going to be able just this evening to look at it just very clearly and I don't I just want to get the awe of it this evening as we look at it together let's begin in verse 9 then came one of the seven angels who had had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me he spoke to me he said come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Many believe that this is the same angel that took John out into the wilderness to show him the harlot Babylon from its vantage point of standing in the wilderness looking on upon it. Now he is being uh, given a glimpse of the new Jerusalem which is then given to us in contrast. This is what the world has to offer, and this is what God has to offer. And God's is always better. The world doesn't even come in second place. It comes a dead last compared to everything that God has for us. And as the bride of Christ itself, those who are in Christ were described as the bride, as the ones attending the marriage supper of the Lamb there in Uh, Revelation 19. So the city is given the same name. But it is used, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now this has caused some to say, well, this can only mean the church, meaning it only means those who are in Christ. But as you look through the Old Testament, God called several things his wife. He called Jerusalem his wife, the city of Jerusalem in the Old Testament, He called the Old Testament saints his bride, and he called the New Testament saints his bride. So it doesn't shock me or surprise me that he would refer to this dwelling place in the same manner that he uh, refers to the occupants themselves. In the Jewish wedding, as after the betrothal period, or when the betrothal period began, the groomsmen would then leave and go and prepare a place to bring his wife and to start his own family. And this parallel you see through many of the concepts of Judaism and Christianity. And God has now prepared a place for us for all eternity, for us to dwell, and he shows us that it's not only the city. The city is one aspect of it, but it's us within the city dwelling with God for all eternity. 
So I hope that makes sense to all of you. A dwelling place, a city for his people. In Isaiah 54, 6, in referring to Jerusalem, the Lord said, He has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of a youth when she is cast off, says your God. Of Jerusalem in Isaiah 62, 5, He says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so your son shall marry you. As a the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. When He speaks of the Old Testament saints... In Jeremiah 2.32, can a virgin forget her ointments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Hosea, when he was instructed to take a harlot for his wife, the Lord said to him, when the Lord first spoke to those uh, through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go to take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for forsaking the Lord. And of course the church has been called the bride. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory as Revelation 19, 7 and 8 states. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made, for, made herself ready and it was granted to clothe herself with the fine linen bright and pure for fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the Spirit says to the bride, and I'm sorry, the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This new Jerusalem anticipated from the beginning through the New Testament has finally arrived the dwelling place for man to be with their, our God for all eternity, as we pick it up in verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. There's that place of advantage, the place of, perfect place to see it. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the uh, gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. And on the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Jews, the apostles, the Gentiles, all dwelling as one in the new Jerusalem for all eternity. There are many who go on to try to describe this place and bring meaning through some of the attributes of this particular temple, or I'm sorry, city, by the references that are made. But in more cases than not, they disagree with one another more than agree. But John is seeing this. This is what has been prepared for us for all eternity. 
a city concept in the history of the Bible, at the time of the Bible, I should say, was an enormous um, part of life for the everyday person. The city was a big deal. It was a and it was an experience that all had the pilgrimages. If you read about them from a historical um, perspective of Jews that are traveling through the nation of Israel, making their way to the city of Jerusalem, there are songs and poems that have been that have been written by those people, by those pilgrims, as they are on their way from the small surrounding villages and so forth and towns, as they're making their way to Jerusalem. And in those songs and in those poems that we have from a historical perspective, there's great anticipation. They can't wait to arrive in Jerusalem. It's something that they look forward to all year, even though the trip could be very difficult, in some cases life-threatening, to go to the city, to have that city, to have that time, to be on that pilgrimage, to be woven in their tradition in the minds of the men and the women and the children of that age and that culture, they're going to Jerusalem. And there, when we get to Jerusalem, will be the temple of God. Oh boy. Even when Daniel was separated from Jerusalem, when he prayed, he looked towards where Jerusalem should be when he prayed. There was always a a great anticipation of Jerusalem, uh, of the city itself. Now John's saying, for all eternity, this is what we get to look forward to. That same anticipation, that same hope, that same joy that came in consideration of pilgriming to the city for the purposes of worshiping God and praying unto God and sacrificing unto God. That's what we have instilled for us here, I believe. Oh, he couldn't wait. At the time that John's writing this, obviously Jerusalem has been destroyed and the epicenter of the, of the world is the Gentile city of Rome. And Rome meant a plurality of pagan gods. It, it meant vile customs. It was the antithesis of all that is Christian. And John says, what waits for us in eternity pales in comparison to even Rome. In fact, as he goes on to describe this, he uses the word gold to describe many of the attributes of this new city. And I believe that there's a direct historical correlation with why he uses that term. Undoubtedly, that's what he saw. But that being said, he gives us this description and I believe that there was something of his time that he was considering. God's desire has always been to dwell with his creation. But sin separated that from the beginning. God, Adam, and Eve, after the moment of creation was uh, was completed, all was good, fellowship was perfect, the interaction, the relationship between man and God, it was uninhibited, and it was perfect in all ways. Then sin entered. And as sin entered, the relationship was severed. Man's spirit died. And from that point on, not only man himself, Adam and Eve, but each and every one that has descended from Adam and Eve has been plagued with the nature of sin that leads to death. But all of creation has been subjected to that same sin curse. 
And that is the context in which we live in today. We interact with God, separated by physical and spiritual, but we operate in between that position in a context of a fallen world. We're inhibited by our own fleshly bodies. How often do we feel the shortcomings of ourselves when we want to simply worship and express our love for God, and yet we know that our flesh inhibits us from doing it perfectly? Because I'm wrapped up in there. My flesh is wrapped up in there. My will is wrapped up in there. My sin is wrapped up in there. And though God is sanctifying me day by day, and though I am a work in progress, I still interact with God through that separation, that physical separation. I'm physical, He's spiritual. And though He's here with us, we are still separated. Though that bridge has been gapped and the the veil has been torn in the temple, meaning that through Christ we can have direct interaction with God, approach His throne with boldness to discover the grace and the mercy that He has for us, yet we know we're still separated. In fact, in my study of the temple, when I look at the the, uh, construction of it, there's all this degree of separation. The Holy of Holies was the centerpiece of the whole entire temple, a perfect cubic square, which I'm no doubt that we are going to discover uh, many Jewish readers would have seen this new Jerusalem as it is described as a cube representing that holy of holy place. That being said, there were distances in which a person could come only so close to that place. The high priest could only go in at a certain time of the year after extensive preparation. But other people had to stay out in the courtyards and in the different places assigned to them. And then it became even more difficult as those courtyards were uh, continuously built. They were, people were gathered farther and farther away. So you had the courtyard of the men, you had the courtyard of the women, the courtyard of the Gentiles, and so forth. Separation. I always knew that there was separation. Not what Adam and Eve had at the beginning, but separated. All of that is eliminated. And that is truly the crux of all that I believe that we are seeing here and enjoying this new Jerusalem, enjoying this place to dwell with God for all eternity. As he states very clearly... He first dwelt with man in the garden, but then man fell. So the tabernacle was created and only Moses could go in. And and God came upon the tabernacle to show that his presence was there. Then a temple was made. But when the Israel sinned, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory departed. And then into the person of Christ. And today, then us. But we're still separated. We're still separated. But that separation is eliminated here for all eternity, allowing us to enjoy the pure fellowship with God. On the gates, the 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned. On the foundations, the 12 foundations, the names of each of the apostles. Believe it or not, many have written at length to discover who was the 12th apostle that is to be written there, Paul or Matthias. 
It's interesting, though, that a lot of those discussions, I think, take us away from the brevity of actually what's being said. But all will dwell there. All who have been saved will dwell there in the new Jerusalem. The foundations, the foundations that the apostles laid, uh, beginning with Christ being the chief cornerstone, then they laid the doctrinal teaching down through the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, that is the necessity for this entire structure to stand because it all rests upon Christ. The Jewish people, the tribes, the 12 tribes were the preparation for that. And all are listed here for us in this description. Listen to what one wrote when he saw or read of this city. The city's description follows the pattern of cities with which John's readers were familiar. There's foundations, there's walls, there's gates. The foundation speaks of permanency. It's in contrast to the tents in which the pilgrims and strangers would have lived. The walls and the gates speak of protection as God's people will never have to fear any enemy once again. And angels at the gates will act as sentries. It is interesting to me, the permanent aspect of this. We have seen here in the United States of America moments and times in our nation's history where Christianity played a large part in our social society. In fact, we spoke of New York City just earlier on in in our time together, but I found a photo online that I found was exquisite. It was taken in 1956 during Easter weekend there in New York City. And of course, in the 1950s, New York's had some of the tallest buildings in the entire world. And do you know what those buildings displayed during Easter weekend? Crosses. As they lit certain rooms and certain floors at certain times, you see the landscape of of, uh, New York City and these high-rises in 1956, and there's crosses on all of the big buildings celebrating Easter. We've seen a nation that can be blessed as it adopts Christian principles, can't, haven't we? The goodness, has, as many have said about our nation over the years, has been displayed in the moral character because of our Christian, Judeo-Christian history. Today you won't go and see next year as we venture into the Easter weekend any such display of Christian crosses. And yet all of that being said, as much as we've seen Christianity permeate societies in Europe and in the United States of America for short periods of time, they're always fleeting, aren't they? You look to Europe today and the effect of Christianity and their degree and intensity of their post-Christian era in which they're at, and you wonder, wow, I can't believe that this used to be the center of Christianity at one time traveling through the streets of London or through the streets of Paris or even the Danish cities of Amsterdam and know how many theologians and scholars came out of these regions and today, oh boy, it's not even close. But when we come to this point, it will be permanent. There will be no more vacillation. God and his son Jesus Christ will be the cornerstone and the center of the entire society. 
and all who are in Christ, who died in Christ throughout the history of the world, will gather in this new Jerusalem and it will be permanent. It will be permanent. There will be no threat posed against us. The gates are always opened as we have read. There are sentries at the entrance points, but again, they're going to be quite lonely. Not going to have much to do. And in verse 15, And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square. It's a cube. Its length, the same as its width. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stedia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which was also an angel's measurement. And the wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. In Ezekiel, Ezekiel was asked to measure the temple that is described there. In Revelation 11, we find that the protection of the saints are marked out by the measurements of the temple of that time. And here, once again, we are given these dimensions. And these dimensions are something to wrestle with. There's no doubt about. Obviously, there is a description here that is being given of a city... But are these literal dimensions or are they figurative? Do they represent something else? We have here for us the measurements of a cube. It is equal in length and width and height and equal in measure. And some have debated that if this, is it a cube or a pyramid? But the days of Egypt are over. But what about this cubular design to this city. The Holy of Holies was a perfect square, a perfect cube in and of itself, 12 by 12 by 12. It's a perfect place. We have a representation of that here. That is where God dwelt amongst his people during the times that the temple was uh, architected and resurrected there in Jerusalem. But if this is true, the 1200 stadia meant that the length, the width, the height, and the depth of this city is a hundred. I'm sorry, one thousand four hundred miles in each direction. That is one big city. Some believe that these numbers all equal perfection, which we undoubtedly know this city will be a matter of perfection. The walls measurements, though, 144 cubits. If you're reading the NIV, they insert a word here measuring the thickness of the wall being 144 cubits, indicating that, you know, uh, the wall is, um, I forgot now how many feet wide. But what is John stating for us here? Why is he measuring these things out? It appears that the same issue of certainty wants to be given to its readers concerning the particular dwelling place of God. That it will be perfect, that it will be set apart, that it will be a, a dwelling place for all that who desire to dwell there. 
There are many facets of it that we do not understand. The, 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 the cube aspect of it would definitely remind a Jewish reader of the Holy of Holies itself, as we've stated numerous times already. But one said that the best interpretation of the measuring of the city is that the apocalyptist is struggling to express by symbols the vastness, the perfected symmetry, and the splendor of the new Jerusalem. And I think we can all agree with that. Now again, there have been many studies done taking these measurements into account and plotting them out and designing a cubular uh, city that would uh, give each individual residence for all eternity. Henry Morris, I think, did some of the most expansive work on this and guesstimated that on the basis of the number of people that have lived and died and also have been aborted or stillborn, and he went on to map all of this out, he came up with a number that he believed would occupy all of eternity. I forgot what that number was specifically, but he averaged that if this city is literal in a cubic design, a hundred and I mean a thousand miles wide, fourteen hundred miles wide, fourteen miles fourteen hundred miles high, fourteen hundred miles deep, that each person who's ever died in Christ would have on average seventy five acres to deal with for all eternity. Now I live in a condo for a reason. I'm not a big yard work guy. God bless you guys. I mean, if you find that spending your time weeding is a uh, thing that you enjoy doing, God bless you. My idea of ground care is sitting on my balcony, reading my Bible with a glass of iced tea and waving to the groundskeeper as they go by. (laughs) So I don't know what I'm going to do with 75 acres. I have always held to it being a literal position, but I'm now moving to the position of I think what John is describing here is something so much more spectacular than just that, being confined to just that. And like I said, he gives us measurements to know that it is going to be a place of dwelling for all of us for all of eternity. And I think that he goes on to describe what he sees as something more than just symbolic of perfection that is measured out in verses 15 through 17 as he describes in verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. First of all, gold has never been clear, has it? So we must be talking about something else. Now many have done extensive works on the different types of jewels that are mentioned from this point on. In fact, you can even find a book that states all the different jewels of the Bible, gems of the Bible, and what they mean. That's fine, but here's the problem that I run into. People can't agree what some of these jewels actually look like, and starting with their color, which has a big uh, impression upon its understanding and interpretation. And so, again, until we know for sure what these stones actually look like, Let's read and see what John is trying to describe to us. Because again, we know that gold is not clear. But, here's an interesting thing that I discovered I'd like to throw out for you. In Jerusalem, after the destruction of the temple, the temple that remained was Herod's temple. 
And Herod, during the time of Christ and just that afterwards, went out and stole as much gold as he possibly could. And he lined his entire temple with gold that at certain times of the day, that gold was so reflective that it blinded people. He wanted it to be so spectacular. Uh, In fact, the movie that was created about the nativity actually introduces that historical uh, idea, talking about uh, gathering the gold from all the peasants and so forth, and then lining his uh, uh, temple, or I should say his palace with it. Here, John's saying the whole thing is gold. Whatever Herod thought he had, it's nothing in comparison to what waits for us. I think that's very interesting to consider. For example, Chuck Swindoll did some interesting work through this, and I want to read some of these things to you. He found four specific things that he wanted to observe and look at. He says, first of all, let's read first the text, and we'll look at some of these individually. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second uh, sapphire, the third agate, and the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, and the sixth carlinian, the seventh crystallite, not crystallite the drink, the eighth burel, the ninth topaz, and christophas, or farce, uh, and then the eleventh uh, genicith, and the twentieth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl and the street, the city of the city, was pure gold, like transparent glass. It is interesting, Swindoll went in and did some work on it when he was at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary for a while, and he wanted to look into this more deeply. And he says, first of all, concerning the foundations of the city walls adorned with every kind of jewel, he said such materials likely symbolize the great diversity of people who will dwell in the city walls. Elsewhere we read through his uh, shed blood that Christ purchased men from every tribe, tongue, and people from every nation and made them a kingdom of priests to our God. Secondly, when the city speaks of itself as crystal clear, and massive walls surrounding its transparent glass. In the present fallen world, people built walls to maintain privacy and security. These can, he said, be physical barriers to keep out curious onlookers from watching our every move, but they can also be mental, emotional, or spiritual walls that protect us from harm and hide our shame or keep people at a distance from us relationally. This kind of security and uh, sec- uh, security will be unnecessary in the celestial city. To a certain degree, Christians today can reflect the grace and the glory of God, but not by hiding in the inner sanctuaries of the private life, but by being transparent with others. This means keeping the inside as pure as the outside and letting people see the glory of God shine through us. When it comes to the gates, he stated, and them being of pearls, 
John Phillips in his commentary series wrote and he said, All other precious gems are metals or stones, but a pearl is a gem formed within an oyster and the only one formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound and around the uh, offending article that has penetrated and has hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, we might say, is the answer of the oyster to the area that has been injured. He goes on to comment and he states, the pearl represents pain resulting in beauty, suffering crowned with glory. When we read of this symbol of the pearl eternally embedded in the doorways of heaven, it should remind us that Christ's suffering had an eternal purpose and opened heaven for us. It also assures us that our own suffering for the sake of Christ has a purpose and can be used by him to reflect his glory in our lives. And lastly, when it comes to the streets themselves, he stated, the streets that are made of pure gold. Imagine that, he states. The New Jerusalem, the material we adore the most in this world will be put to common use. The marble paved streets of Ephesus, where the Apostle John lived out his days, were unusually extravagant, designing it as one of the most opulent cities of the Roman Empire. Yet the opulence of the New Jerusalem will far exceed that of Ephesus or any other city. Gold for which countless criminals have killed will be tread upon like asphalt. No vanity, no materialism, no envy or greed, But best of all, no one will be poor in the place that paves its streets with gold. These are fascinating comments to consider. Again, many many have done research. Many have drawn conclusions. Many have given meaning to the different uh, gems that are used here. But often, again, I state that they contradict each other more than they agree. So look at it for yourself. Take a look at how these stones are mentioned throughout the Bible to come to the conclusions to see if there may be something more that you would like to discover in and of these descriptions of this new Jerusalem. But that being said, it is unlike any other city that has ever existed. There's nothing like it. Nothing in this world compares to what this city will be. As one states, he says, while the beauty of the city have may, uh, many, I'm sorry, while the beauty of the city may have symbolic meaning, no clue is given to as to its precise interpretation. Since it is reasonable to assume that the saints will dwell in that city, it is best to take the city as a literal future dwelling place of the saints and the angels of God for all eternity. Verse 22. And there he goes and begins to list what he does not see. And I saw no temple in the city, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. And the city had no need of the sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And it's a lamp is the Lamb himself. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth, which is an interesting expression, of the earth will bring in their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day 
There will be no more night there. They will bring into, the, into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There are predictions in the Old Testament of the one day Jerusalem being the center of the world, the epicenter, and all the nations of the world come to worship there, and we believe that fulfills itself in the millennial kingdom. John may be using those aspects of description as he is writing here, because again, the nations of the earth, it's an interesting expression, and I I'm going to look at it further because it really struck me today and I didn't have enough time to pursue it in and of itself, but it gives an interesting flavor to the possible quality of eternity. And there are some who have derived from this some conclusions that there will be settlements outside the uh, New Jerusalem, etc., and there will be kings and so forth. Again, these are conclusions drawn upon very, very... um, individualized verses, meaning we don't have a lot of context to build that. But he does say it. That the nations shall walk and the kings of the earth will be brought into its glory. The gates will never be shut by day, meaning there will be no threat against it. There is no antagonist. There is no aggressor. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Again, interesting words. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life, as we see that term used one more time here in our text. Darkness and light has been used to describe many of the aspects throughout the Bible. Truth versus error, God's perfection versus sin's corrupt disorder pure spirit versus impure flesh, God's heavenly kingdom and Satan's worldly kingdom, light and dark. Here there will be no darkness at all. There will be no night, for God himself will illuminate the entire city with his holiness and his glory. When John said that the night will no longer exist in the new Jerusalem, he was speaking literally that it has spiritual applications. In the new creation, error, sins, corruption, and the fallen flesh and evil administration of the world will be eradicated. As the light displaces darkness, so the the holy, shining presence of God will drive out wickedness and falsehood in the light. In this light, the glory of God, all nations walk, and they will pass through the open gates, entering into its presence without hindrance or hesitation. John grew up at a time where Rome was the governing empire of the world. They were always subjected to Roman influence at one point of their life or another. They, they didn't have their individual sovereignty as a nation, Israel, any longer. They couldn't even carry out capital punishment, which we know about throughout all the Gospels. And I believe that what John is saying here is that he is saying that all of the world will be subjected to the righteousness of God. The new heaven, the new earth, will all be subjected to the righteousness of God. In its purity, in its holiness, there is no more sin anymore. There is no more death. There is no more rebellion that has all been done away with. 
no longer will, be there, will there ever be that influence again in the life of the individual. No longer will you be hampered in your interaction with God to any degree at all. And I believe that what he is stating here is that the world in which they hoped for, precedented on the fact that the Jewish people were very much looking forward and anticipating Messiah coming and relieving them from their Roman oppression. When Jesus did not deliver that, when he did not instigate that or bring that about, many deserted him. That was their idea of Messiah. He therefore did not fit it at that time. They did not have the consideration of him coming to free them from the bondages of sin. That wasn't in their thinking. It was, he's going to liberate us from our oppressors. That's all done away with now. That's all finished. Never to occur again. And bringing in those passages from the Old Testament that talk about the one day that all the nations will worship, we know that happens in the millennial kingdom, but it's still fettered with the fall. There's still that aspect, and rebellion is still possible, and it is demonstrated at the end as Satan goes about and moves across the land, etc. This has been eliminated once and for all. We'll end with this. Though the description of the city does not answer all questions concerning the eternal state, the revelation given to John describes a beautiful and glorious future for all who put their trust in a living God. So the next time you think about a city that you desire to visit, and maybe looking forward to seeing that city from a certain vantage point, such as the Eiffel Tower or the Empire State Building. Because these are on your bucket list. Remember that even though you may not get to the Jerusalem of today, the one we will eventually see is the one that has been perfected. And in this new Jerusalem, I'm going to tell you something. No bucket list will be needed because you're never going to die again. I look forward to this. Again, as I was preparing this and I was looking at this, there are many facets of this that I say to myself, I just don't fully understand God. I I, I don't. But I will. I'll get it. And I didn't want to complicate it with all of the conclusions and inferences and speculations and conjectures that people have wrought that in any way would tarnish what John is describing for us. As he gave us that flyover in the beginning of Chenning One, now he takes us through the city. Look at it in wonder. Look at it in awe. Look at it in anticipation, saying this is what awaits us.